Hello and welcome to the final episode of Getting Lost in Great Film from View Entertainment. I'm James King. Now, in this series, I've been chatting to film buffs from either side of the screen about their five favourite film moments. And each week we immerse ourselves in a new genre, from love to music, action to drama and cinematography to comedy, to better understand how they've created cinematic worlds for us to escape into. And today we're getting lost in theatre for the big screen, with the Royal Shakespeare Company's Deputy Artistic Director, Erica Wyman. Erica, lovely to see you. And you, thanks for inviting me. So, Royal Shakespeare Company, Deputy Artistic Director. I know what all those words mean individually, (laughs) but put together, what actually does that mean? What does that entail? Well, I am a theatre director, and for most of my career, I have been an artistic director. So, I've run various theatres, meaning I've taken charge of the programme and of the kind of health and wealth of the building that I'm running. Uh, This role means that I report to the artistic director, Greg Doran, uh, but my my task really is to keep making sure we're surprising, that we're relevant to audiences now. I take a lead on commissioning the new plays um, that we do, but I also direct Shakespeare for us. And I also have a kind of keen interest in making sure we're really national. I've done quite a lot of my work either on tour or for the previous eight years before I came to the RSC, I was at Northern Stage in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. So I I sort of have a real sense of what it's like not working in the capital and how much the company means around the country. So, yeah, I do a few things for us. And, of course, we'll we'll get on to how that works in tandem with View and getting your productions into the cinema. But obviously, you know, that that makes complete sense, right? To get the the production seen around the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a a really big part of why I wanted to be at the RSC is the potential of reaching an enormous number of people. And, yeah, this project really allows us to do that. Radically playful, you've described yourself as... (laughs) Are you going to be radically playful in this podcast? I oh, hope crikey, so. I have. Yeah, that's why we booked you. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I'll do my very best. <laughs> We're all about losing ourselves in great stories, switching off from the distractions of daily life. And I'm sure that that's integral, really, to your professional life. Um, and and yeah. how does that, how would you say that fits in with what you do on a daily basis? Well, you're right. It's absolutely at the centre. And it's it's funny thinking of the word playful. You know, I'm a grown up and I, sh- you know, don't think of myself as playing every day. But actually, I'm very privileged to be in a rehearsal room most days and for, you know, some weeks of the year in my own rehearsal room, leading that room. And they are places of 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 play and also a, a flow. I mean, it's a very sort of feels like a bit Californian as a way of talking about it, but a place where you can forget about other responsibilities and just completely disappear into the work. And it is hard work. You ask a lot of people, and I think sometimes people don't understand the discipline, dedication required of actors and theatre artists. But um, that's partly because it requires this sort of total immersion. And then the other side of that is that's what we're trying to do for an audience. That's that's the service we provide, I think, is to invite people to get lost into an, in another world. And that the magic in the theatre is that you can really feel as though you are there, um, that the walls of the building disappear somewhat and you, you are part of the story. 
it, it doesn't work without you, of course. You can't do it without an audience, um, which is not true of almost any other art form. You can make it and hope it'll, somebody will see it, but you can't, you can't do that in the theatre. So there's something about inviting people to share a world that is fundamentally a form of getting lost. And you're based at Stratford-upon-Avon? Yeah, yeah, fundamentally. I spend quite a lot of time both around the country and in London, but yeah, I, I live, and, live and work in Stratford, yeah. So um, you've had a hard day at Stratford-upon-Avon. You go home... <laughs> Yes. How about when you get home? You, I'm, I'm saying put your feet up. I presume you do. No, there's not very much putting of feet up in my house uh, <laughs> because there's a six and a half year old involved, my daughter. And um, I didn't. I had her when I was 43. So there we are. I've confessed my age immediately at the beginning of this. Um, but that means that I'd spent a lot of time thinking I was fully adult and kind of in charge of my life and independent in some way. And then up popped this m- marvellous creature who has changed all that, really. She makes me play in a different way and she makes me see the world through different eyes and she never stops. So, yeah, getting home from work is is starting again with a different set of immersive challenges. CBBs and things like that. Well, she yeah, she's a massive fan of television, thinks television is magic. Um, and, I, and it's interesting because I, I grew up in a house that really that really approved of television and respected it, which was quite rare. Lots of people, you know, thought it was a terrible idea. But my dad worked for the BBC and worked on the on the news in the BBC in the 60s, which always seemed to me totally thrilling. He was on live news. He was there the night that Kennedy died. So, you know, he saw a few things happen in the early days of live television that I think created an enthusiasm that I have definitely passed on to her. She thinks it's extraordinary and miraculous. But in fact, she doesn't watch much of it. She likes the sense that it's special. And so really the demanding stuff is not watching CBeebies with her. The demanding stuff is um, the big projects. So she really has announced she wants to go to World Book Day dressed as uh, the King of the Fairies, Oberon from Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm okay. a bit embarrassed, but it's true. Right. You must um, have a costume somewhere. In we, the, we didn't have one. We do now. <laughs> So, yeah, there were quite ambitious projects, building space, rockets, you know, um, nothing is too ambitious for her. So I I love that. That is a form of getting lost, this, this little person saying, why not? Why can't we? Let's try it. And you've got some film choices for us, haven't you? We're we're talking, I guess loosely we're talking about culture. There's a word that means so many different things to different people. But, uh, and of course, event cinema, which is something that the Royal Shakespeare Company and View Cinemas are heavily involved in. Yeah. So I think around that topic, around that theme, you've got some films, five films that you'd like to just uh, chat about. Yeah, I have. I mean, I, I found it strangely challenging because I realised that I spend quite a lot of time when I'm not working uh, go, going to other forms of, of screen work, whether that's television or it's or movies, so I really had to think what are the inspirations, and then and then suddenly it was very clear because I I sometimes deny being a kind of Shakespeare fanatic because I haven't directed Shakespeare all of my career, and then when I was asked this question, I realised that quite a lot of my choices are Shakespeare, so that's good. <laughs> um, I mean, the one the one I thought I might kick off with is made in 1979, but possibly the greatest Shakespeare on film that I know, which is Ian McKellen and Judi Dench as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Greater than both by the all hail hereafter. Thy letters have transported me beyond this ignorant present, and I feel now the future in the instant. My dearest love. Duncan comes here tonight. And when goes hence? Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall sun that morrow see. 
directed originally for the Royal Shakespeare Company by, by Trevor Nunn. And this may seem very close to home, but it's really special because one of the things I do at the RSC is look after the other place, which is a 200-seat studio theatre, which has always, for 45 years, had a kind of spirit of adventure and experiment and, and not, not anything like the rather stuffy image of theatre-going that we, we sometimes have in this country, kind of properly... Uh, adventurous and useful and playful and radical and all of those things. And it was set up by a woman called Buzz Goodbody in uh, in the early 70s when Trevor Nunn was the artistic director. And what she wanted to do was bring a different kind of audience to Stratford. And so, and she was particularly keen in investigating what happened if you put Shakespeare into a tiny space. And no one had really done it before. It was the birth of studio theatres, which we've all got very used to. Yeah. And um, Buzz tragically died just a few years into her tenure at the other place, having directed a couple of amazing, by all accounts, amazing productions, Hamlet and King Lear in particular. And Trevor Nunn sort of picked up the baton when she's right. There's something about having an audience so close to these words and having quite a small company. And obviously you can't have big sets or big fancy flying pieces. It's really just the actors and the audience. And he directed this this production of Macbeth which is so haunting and it was beautifully filmed um i think for ITN and and you can still get it it's um it's it, it's in black and white and you get this uh, kind of monochromatic sense of the the terrible melancholy of that play it it's the most moving version of Macbeth i mean it's grim and it's frightening and it's exciting but somehow it's really personal so the sense in which both of these lives are completely destroyed by their actions has never been clearer. I mean, and, and also how wonderfully they speak the words. There's no kind of declamation. They're not doing poetry. They sound like they're just talking to us with the most fantastic phrasing <laughs> and most excellent imagery. And so it feels actually to me, even though it's 40 years old, 41, um, like a really good threshold, like a, a good gateway for people who maybe haven't seen Shakespeare before. It's really surprising. And because both of them, of course, have become... I know. <laughs> I mean, at that point, they were still known actors, yeah, of course, yeah. um, but, but, but not the megastars that not, they are not, now. Not at all, not at all. And um, and theatre stars, I guess, which is maybe no such thing anymore. But, you know, that's that's what they were both known for at that point to their kind of as as young actors having this real gift for the stage so it's a treat because we most of us will know their work in another form to see them much younger playing these parts with such vulnerability and, and such skill number two what's second number two is a is quite tricky because um i don't know how fashionable this is these days but i actually am a fan of the baz Luhrmann romeo and juliet that's so unfashionable, Erica. I'm, I'm just going to say it out loud. No, no. Listen, I've got my notes in front of me. You can see here, and I've got Baz Luhrmann's Romeo, or yes. Romeo plus, plus Juliet, Juliet, as it was known. Uh, I've got it on my list as well. It's tricky in theatre circles because when it came out, there was a little bit of sniffiness. I yep. think in the British theatre about whether they had done enough of the words, or whether they had fully understood all of the words, or whether you could do that to Shakespeare. And I, I, I loved it. I loved it when I first saw it. I thought it's incredible energy and sort of wild invention. The, the way, I'm sure there isn't anyone listening who hasn't seen it, but the way that he turns swords into guns with fancy names like, like really chic guitars, it's, it's just so cool. At, at the same time, what I find shocking about it is how much of the text they did do. 
they actually did most of it. Mm. <laughs> and um, last year I directed Romeo and Juliet for us, um, which was actually my first experience of, of, of one of our plays being broadcast. I think I was number 20 in the canon of, of our plays in the last 10 years that have been broadcast. But but coming to do that show and thinking about Romeo and Juliet, I was hugely influenced by the Baz Luhrmann. And I went back and watched the balcony scene. I was like, what, you know, what was it that was so magic? And of course, that you know, you turn it on at the balcony scene thinking, that's what you're going to do some research. And then you can't help but go back to the fish tank. The fish tank is a work of genius. My so you've got this incredible image of seeing each other through a fish tank, which is a little bit like, if I can remember it, falling in love, that there's this sort of filter and you can't see anything but the person you're falling in love with. So it's very clever. But it's also Shakespearean, which may sound odd. But what he's really doing in in that sequence when they meet at um, the Capulet's party that Romeo shouldn't be at is creating a world where the impossible is possible. It should, there's a different version of that evening. It, it should be that he has to keep his mask on or his hat over his face for the whole evening and not, not be seen at all. And as soon as he sees Juliet, he cannot do that. And so the fish tank moment is so amazing because it's properly about going, they, they just have to let the other person look at them. And once that's happened, we're all done for. They, they have to be together. And that is how the play works. So when I came to do it, I, I, obviously you cannot have a fish tank on stage. I mean, you can, but it wouldn't have worked because that would have been a moment between them. And yeah. of course, it's about the audience. So I created this huge kind of rave dance number because I wanted it. To, I mean, I say rave, that's showing my age. It was actually grime because we properly did our research about young people right now. And um, and I had I had them dance in between Romeo and Juliet and and. It took a long time building it and trying to work out exactly how that sequence was going to work. And there was this blissful moment where Bally Gill, who was playing Romeo, said, it's the fish tank. Because <laughs> uh, I felt strongly if I said I was trying to make a fish tank, you know, that was a disaster. <laughs> so I hadn't confessed. But he was right. That was what I was trying to do, that actually they were seeing each other through impossible odds. Um, so, yeah, I love it. And I think it's a great introduction to the play. It's got a wild spirit, but also importantly, it is a tragedy, which cinema hasn't always respected that about um, putting putting plays into screen form, which, of course, that's not that's not an, as live, but it is it's an interpretation of a play. It is a little bit cheeky at the end. It suggests that a happy ending is slightly more available than it is in the play. But it doesn't go there. It is a tragedy. Spoiler alert. And uh, and I love it for that because it was so squarely aimed at young people and I thought it didn't condescend at all. said, this is a horrible story about how this society has fallen apart and the adults actually in the film are, are kind of caricatured monsters. But they're monsters. And the young people are not, um, which I think is what the play's really about. And you said that when you directed uh, Romeo and Juliet, I think it was summer 2018, mm. um, that was broadcast. So yeah. many people listening will have will have seen it, uh, uh, of you, I'm sure. Um, did you know it was going to be broadcast when you when you went into it? And I agreed to do it. <laughs> uh, yes, I did. I okay. did by the, because of my role. You know, I've been yeah. quite closely involved in the broadcast, and actually, I have been the go-to woman. If you, if you look back at our back catalogue, for when the director gets too scared to do the introduction to their own show, guess who pops up? Um, John Wyver, who's produced um, 
uh, all of the all of the broadcasts for us. He's he's very funny. It's so quietly going. How can you not hap- you don't happen to be free on Thursday night, do you? Exactly seven minutes to seven. <laughs> so I'd been quite closely involved in other people's in yeah. trying to find ways to kind of frame them and talk about them in the context of the season or give people a clue as to what they're about without spoiling it. Because I think one huge opportunity that the, the relationship we have with you gives us is to reach people who might not feel like going to the theatre is, is for them or is too, is too difficult geographically or or it's more about what it feels like. They think they might have to dress up, it might be expensive, et cetera, et cetera. They feel more comfortable in a cinema environment. So we've tried to be quite um, canny about that and make content around the work and including in the introductions to the live broadcast that give people a sense that there's nothing to be afraid of. This is just a story and they're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so I've, I had done quite a lot of that. And then, yeah, knowing it was going to be broadcast was a big deal for Romeo and Juliet, partly because it's such an important text. So many people study at school, you know, one of the most studied. And this hell of a responsibility, to, which I set myself, I wanted to set it right now. And I kind of imagined, well, there are no phones or computers because otherwise the story wouldn't work. But apart from that, it's a kind of now. And I, I therefore really wanted it to work on screen. But you can't begin thinking that because, first of all, you've got to make it work in a thousand seat thrust theatre in Stratford. Right. Um, but it's there in the back of your mind. But it's in the back of your mind. We, we used to use the phrase broadcast to the nation because that just, you know, just puts the fear of God into you is to just say to the company. And of course, in a couple of weeks after that, we will broadcast it to the nation. Um, and I think that helped <laughs> to get us used to it. And it was a very young company. Um, I mean, a handful of people my age playing the parent figures, um, uh, but a lot of very young actors and quite a lot new to Shakespeare and with a great number of them from different bits of the UK. Something I remember very clearly from the night of the broadcast was the unbelievable excitement in the cast where they realised that family and friends were watching all over the country. It was really thrilling. Um, And there were people who hadn't been able to get to Stratford to see it. You know, he had a brilliant actor called... uh, Josh Finan, whose family from Liverpool, and they hadn't seen it yet, and they, you know, they were all piled into thin around Liverpool to see it. So it was great. And Bally, as who I mentioned before, he's from Coventry, which is twenty-five minutes in Stratford. All the cinemas in Coventry were sold out, which I just love. And so his family had to come see it in Stratford. And we were getting very excited on stage, and I went up to the dressing rooms to see a couple of the older actors who played Capulet and Montague, respectively. They're both from the North East, which is a place close to my heart. And they were saying, don't you think they're getting a bit giddy, the youngsters? <laughs> we should calm them down. And I said, I said, well, yeah, you're right. You know, it's just got to be just another night. Which of course it can't be. But they were right. And I, you know, I paid good lip service to that idea. And as I went out of the door, I said, um, uh, I hope they enjoy it in Newcastle. And these two grown men went, what do you mean they're watching in Newcastle? Suddenly, you know, they were giddy as well. So, yeah, it was thrilling. It was really thrilling. And um, and that that play was, of course, broadcast as all of them are free in schools, but had one of the biggest take-ups we've had. So actually the terrifying day was when it was watched as live by 83,000 young people at the same time. But I think that's one of the things with, with these events is that Yes, a lot of them are live, but when they have the the encore performances and they're as live as you mentioned, it's still a live moment, is it? Oh yeah. You still sense that 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 you know this is live theatre, even if it was recorded a few days earlier. Yeah, totally. I mean, I find that really fascinating. That it's almost like human beings will it to be live, and because there are lots of clues, because it looks like it's live, and it sounds like it's live, we you know it, it starts to become a very special event. 
I love watching them in schools. When I watched, I watched Romeo and Juliet in uh, primary school with years five and six, and there was a teacher who was really sure, absolutely convinced that the, the, the kids would laugh whenever there was a kiss. And again, spoiling the play, but there is a bit of kissing in Romeo and Juliet. And the first kiss, of course, is some of the most beautiful Shakespeare in all of the canon. And uh, this teacher got up every time they kissed and went, ugh. <laughs> it's just totally extraordinary. But the brilliant thing was that he was he was a lone voice. So the 10 and 11-year-olds, boys and girls, were not best pleased by their teacher's behaviour. And by the time the last kiss came along, which, of course, is rather tragically at the very end of their lives, he got up to do it again and they properly shushed him. So that was a blissful moment, that sense that actually, as you say, they... They didn't want him to to disturb their experience of it. In fact, the actors weren't really in the room. It's just it was trickery, but it felt life. Really felt life. And I've been, um, you know, in 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 the cinema watching these these events, and there's a people applaud at the end. You know, yeah. When when everyone yeah. comes on stage and takes their bow, we're applauding as if we're actually at the theatre. Yeah, it's an amazing it, experience. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't think we still understand it. Of course, it is still a relatively new phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, we're getting on for 15 years. That's not very long, really. Um, and yeah, and for the RSC, it's about, about eight and a half. So I, I, I guess we are just beginning to understand how emotional emotion works. How I mean, going back to that idea of being lost, it is that, isn't it? You can't watch something that appears to be live without congratulating the performers or being excited by it or laughing along. It turns out we're not doing that because the people are in the room with us. We're doing it because we feel part of the event. I think that's what's going on. Um, and we want, we want to feel as though we're really there because that's the illusion. So we all, we all participate as if, as if we really are. <laughs> so we move on from Romeo and Juliet, Romeo plus Juliet, mm. to... Film well, number three. Okay, look, this is a completely rogue, but I, I think it's time to do... You are radically like, playful, I am Erica. radically playful. So. Well, it's not... I mean, <laughs> it's going to seem weird, this, but I got very excited by the British Museum's ex- experiment um, where they, they broadcast a kind of cocktail of um, film and exhibition about Pompeii. I don't know if you saw it. There are some clips um, still available online. It's just amazing because what you know, puzzle they have is people who can't get to their exhibition. Um, they can see the artefacts, you know, you can sort of see pictures of the artefacts. Yeah. But they can't do the storytelling. And so maybe that's why it appealed to me so much. Um, I have had the good fortune of going to Pompeii and being, you know, really knocked out by the unbelievable evidence of one one day, one day in the lives of real human beings. I hadn't really grasped the scale of it until I went. And the the piece that the, the British Museum made essentially took you inside those lives shortly before the eruption and cut that footage in with the artefacts, many of which are either the moulds of human beings that were left behind after the lava or skeletons um, or, or, really, or really small things, you know, bits of, bits of furniture and pottery that were left and murals on the walls. Hello and welcome from the British Museum in London where we're delighted that you're joining us from all over the world. I, hope I just thought I was a brilliant use of the medium because 
actually was more exciting than going to the exhibition. I love a good exhibition, but I think I go to exhibitions as part of my work. I've, you know, I've always had the good fortune of being introduced to museums and galleries. I think they can also be intimidating places where you're not sure how to interpret what you see. And so I love the fact that you could, in a cinema, have an experience of what these objects mean and how they might relate very directly to you and how it could have been you and yeah i i love that i suppose it's i suppose the relationship um between the the, the museum or the theater in your case and the cinema is that they they work together they complement one another i mean i saw um serrano de bergerac at mm. the, the james mcavoy one yeah so the, Playhouse in London, and then when it was broadcast live. And there are many things that are the same. There are many things that I responded to in the same way. But ultimately, at the theatre, I was right at the back. In the cinema, I and everyone in that cinema had the best seat in the house. And we were seeing close-ups. We were seeing edits. Maybe there were things we didn't see at the cinema that we would have seen at the theatre, but worked the other way around as well. So the two things, kind of whether it's an exhibition at a museum, whether it's a theatrical performance... You get different things from each one, don't you? Yeah, you totally do. I think that's a really important thing to say, that if people haven't experienced both, they might think that they're a kind of mirror for each other. I don't think they are. I think you get the best of the experience, uh, but you also get things that, you, yeah, as you say, you couldn't get the other way around. So in Romeo and Juliet, there's a scene between um, Lady Capulet and Juliet that is often... um, I think, ignored or cut or passed by on stage. It's quite, it comes at quite a tricky moment in the plot because we've just, Romeo has just left to be banished and we're, we should all be devastated by that. And suddenly Lady Capulet pops up saying, I think um, you need to stop crying now and get over it and we need to marry you to Paris. And, and when I staged it, I staged it on top of this kind of metal box. It was quite a kind of tough production about a kind of urban environment and how lonely that was. And so Lady Capulet went up on top of this box and had this very intimate conversation with her daughter. In the theatre, I think that was a rather tense and sinister moment, but you couldn't get very close to them. In the cinema, it was terrifying. <laughs> I was really bowled over by it because you were so close to the actors' faces. And actually, it is a remarkable moment because the bit that gets lost is that um, Lady Capulet says, well, if you're so upset about Romeo killing Tibble, why don't I find a guy to kill Romeo? And then that would solve it all. And it's a kind of brilliant. Um, it's a brilliant moment. You know, it's a bit sort of De Niro. <laughs> and are you also directing the cameras and what the close ups are going to be and the vision mixing it, if you like? No, I mean, collaborating on that, yes, but um, actually uh, there's there's a different screen director for each of the productions and that's great because they can bring their expertise of quite how to, to, to find the right shots and they are completely brilliant at doing that. But what is fun, really fun, is sitting in the van and going, oh, hang on. If you look over there, you can, get, you can see something on someone's face that you might not have thought you could see because, of course, when you're directing in the theatre you're creating multiple points of focus. So depending on where people are sitting, you're aware they're going to see so-and-so over so-and-so's shoulder. Whereas, of course, on screen, you've got to choose. So that was, I really enjoyed that, that sort of collaboration of going, yeah, but you might miss that if you, why don't we look over there first and then we can come back over here. But that was all planned yeah. or you, you're just... Well, there's a lot of it was planned. Yeah. And then, and then you know, the theatre director, me, pitches on the night quite late yeah. <laughs> on the calendar that last camera rehearsal going, wait a minute. <laughs> Is there any chance we could get this bit? So they're very amenable. But it's, I mean, it's worth saying it's quite an endeavour because of that. There's such a collaboration, both between skill sets and instincts and also 
a lot of individual human beings having to make it work, including our props and costume team, who have to think slightly differently about how something is going to look on screen, how you hide a microphone or, you know, if people have a change of... I don't want to blow our secrets, but, you know, a change of facial hair. <laughs> what does that look like on screen? It's suddenly another layer of granularity and amazing expertise that I think has been built up over these years. So the quality of everything, every little detail, is really impressive. You mentioned with Romeo and Juliet, people were very excited on the night of mm. the broadcast. Do you find occasionally that it's the other way around? Perhaps more seasoned actors are like, oh, I'm doing this for the theatre. I don't want to have to think about the cinema as well. Well, I think when we started, there was a bit of that. I mean, of course, um, there had been some examples, most most notably N2 Live, before we began. So I think we'd learned a lot about how to prepare actors for the experience. I have really seen it change, though, in sort of five or six years, because I think what actors have begun to realise is it is a really um, respectful and authentic way of seeing the theatre. I think they'd most most seasoned actors had had poor experiences of cameras being put at the back of an auditorium and slightly creaky sound, so you sound like you're shouting on screen. And the sound is very sophisticated on these broadcasts. So as people have dared to see each other's work, or some of them have been really brave and seen their own work on screen, they have relaxed, and I've really noticed a kind of relish for it. A lot of them say it feels like a second press night. So we get you get the sense of a... Um, a real sense of occasion, uh, but but without the journalist scribbling about you in quite the same way. So it's quite celebratory, actually. You do have to stay calm because if you start thinking, this is the only chance I get to get this on camera, then it, then that's that's never a good way to think about performing on stage. Um, it is a diff- it is a different art, I think, acting for screen and for stage, and lots of people can do both. But if you start thinking this is the shot actually nerves will get in the way and your relationship with the audience won't be as won't be as alive so it was right what those those experienced actors said to me although they couldn't follow their own good advice but to calm down and to go it's another night and it's the guys that are here that's what matters Um, and if we play to them in the auditorium really well then that will that will communicate on screen I think it does where do we move on to then after Pompeii well, I've got, I can't quite decide what order to, to say these in. I've got one more Shakespeare example, but um, uh, maybe before I do that, uh, I, I, I felt I needed an honourable mention for the first time that I thought this could really work, which was before I worked for the RSC. And uh, my partner at the time um, was Richard Bean, the playwright, and he, he wrote One Man, Two Governors at the National, for the National Theatre, James Corden, um, starred in it in the original production and they were one of the very first broadcasts I mean it was maybe two years in something like that because people couldn't get tickets because That's it was right. so popular that is right so it was totally sold out and uh, had become a bit of a phenomenon somewhat to Richard's surprise and um, it was a huge success the broadcast it was really thrilling really exciting but I remember two things about it which is why I wanted to mention it I was opening a new play in Newcastle at Northern Stage. My entire team, the whole of the staff, said, we're really sorry, we're not going to be at your press night, but we're going to go to the Tyneside Cinema and watch Richard's (laughs) play on screen. And I thought, God, there's really really something in this. (laughs) And what is interesting about that is that there has been a lot of anxiety, I think, across the theatre that 
these screenings could damage audience development and, and ticket sales. And it's not been true. I just thought, want to say that very clearly. It's really not been true. And that night, I was really nervous about that. And I went, no, what it is, is it's generating excitement about going to the theatre because it means so many more productions. And of course, this has been true in opera as well, uh, are available to people, are accessible to people. And so in, a, in the course of a week or a month, you can go and see, you know, two or three things at the cinema and see something at your local theatre. And that's just, that's good for developing confidence in audiences and enthusiasm in audiences. But yeah, it was very cheeky. And the, <laughs> then the other thing I remember uh, when I eventually got to see it was that, I don't know if you saw, saw this clip, but there, the way they handled the interval is Nick Heitner, who was then the artistic director of the National and had directed the production, took the cameras backstage to meet people and and he was very mischievous about it and sort of you know willfully ignoring James and pretending he didn't know who he was and uh, I just thought this was the most amazing um, mischief because it was essentially playing with the form which is part of what the show does and it's part of what theatre does because it's daring us to remember that it's just a play <laughs> which is really not something you tend to do on stage although Shakespeare does it quite often quite often says Actually, uh, just to remind you, I, I require you to believe in a, a leap of time or a leap of imagination. And although, you know, it's very sort of gentle and very funny and very enjoyable, I just thought in a way, in its own way, it was really radical. And because it was so early on, I thought, God, this isn't amazing. He was playing with what we've been talking about. He was playing with the idea that we've all bought in and we, we believe we're at a live event. So we know that just behind that door... The actors having a cup of tea. <laughs> so it felt really daring to go, should we go and see them? <laughs> and then to come back out and to carry on as though they are not actors, they are characters in a play. So yeah, for lots of reasons, I, I remember that one going, this could really work, this could really take off. an actor does it show it's the way you stand at an angle as if there's an audience over there <laughs> are there films that you can think of that have captured theatrical life very well i mean i was thinking of a few um mm. Like uh, let's waiting for Guffman, which is more about mm. Amdram. <laughs> it's not, yeah. but uh, I thought that was funny. Uh, All about <laughs> Eve is probably one of the classics about yeah. the sort of the backstabbing and the egos. Um, Black Swan was one of my favourites, which is, I suppose, more about ballet. But I suppose at the, uh, at the same time, it was about performers. Yeah. Personally, I've always loved those stories about performers or actors who in some way get taken over by the characters that they're playing. Yeah. That might be quite a romantic way of looking at acting by someone who <laughs> isn't an actor, but I do think that that's a fascinating psychological yeah. journey to take. Yeah, I mean, you're right that it's not very common, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> that actually, actors are pretty good usually at knowing where the line is. But we're all attracted to those stories, I think, because they're, they're a little bit like what happens to us when we're watching something that we get lost in it and we can't quite tell anymore what the reality is and and I suppose it relates to dreams doesn't it and our what it is to fantasize about being somebody else which is what we think acting is yeah and, and being someone else night after night night after night, after night. And, and what is true I think is about those stories that I that I recognize in real life is that there is an emotional cost to doing that every night um, I'm going to sound like I'm talking about nothing but Romeo and Juliet, but actually an actress who played Lady Capulet, Mariam Hake, 
she was having a really tough time a few weeks in, just going through really hard work. And we had a chat about why. And she suddenly said to me, you know what, I, I've got it. It's all right. I'm, I'm not having a breakdown. I just have to watch children dying every night. And it's really hard. She was in Macbeth in the same season. So literally every night she was watching different children die. And so it's worth saying that I think there is a cost to actors who, who, who are on stage rather than, you know, being able to put something in the can and go, I've done it, that they have to go back in the ring and start again as though it's never happened before. And that's a note that directors give all the time is try and imagine that these events have never happened before. This is the very first time, first time anyone's seeing the story. And it's really easy to say, but what that requires people to do is live through a series of usually catastrophic or at least challenging events, even in comedy, you know, farcically catastrophic events or really appalling events over and over again. So I think, there, yeah, there is a cost to that for sure. I, I like Black Swan very much. I think it does catch the sort of psychological drama of wanting to disappear into something and not knowing the edges of yourself. I like the dresser as well, though, that I realise is a really old-fashioned choice, but it's kind of, it gets at something um, kind of peculiarly courteous about the theatre that sort of masks something quite dark and quite visceral and quite, you know, close to those the, those emotional costs I'm talking about. And I, I like that line it draws, that kind of uh, strange, um, it, it's a little bit like, um, the way that Remains of the Day works, that you get inside the character that's not giving very much away, partly by seeing this you know, extraordinary actor giving, giving it out and you, you start to ask questions about the person that's not doing that, that's not expressing themselves. And it's a really beautiful film, Dresser, and peculiar, peculiarly sad film, I think. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I can't think of any others. <laughs> Maybe I avoid films about the theatre. Well, and also I think possibly that films about films are more popular yes. than films about yes. theatre. Yes. Um, really films about question. films, they're endless, you know, whether that's recent Tarantinos or going back to Singing in the Rain or something. Now, so that is interesting. I, my head, when you asked me that question, my head immediately went to musicals, which is not the answer to the question. But actually, I wonder if, I wonder if it's a version of it that I think about West Side Story which is absolutely not a piece, not a film about the theatre at all. It's, it's, a, it's a film which emerges from a set of very theatrical instincts and, of course, a musical. And I guess what I find interesting about that, because then as we were talking, I was going, I'm my fair lady. And, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole genre of films that are unapologetically theatrical, yeah. which is different, I think. And I, I, I find them really fascinating. The way that you can um, stop time on screen. So the, the sequences in My Fair Lady where all of London is bustling and then the, just the daring of it to just make everybody stop. And that can't possibly be real life. So you're outside of naturalism, but you're not, you're not looking at a set. You're looking at, you think, you're looking at a real place. So what happens, I think, in your brain is what happens in the best theatre, which is that suddenly you're looking at something poetic and gorgeous and and strange and framed and in the heart of it is a real character that you believe in and musicals do that you know the way you know going back to West Side Story in a way it is the best version of Romeo and Juliet on screen obviously mine is very good obviously <laughs> you know Bass did quite a good job but there is something about understanding its form in West Side Story that's amazing and really of its time and yeah I appreciate it's not really about the theatre at all but it is about staging violence and love in a way that goes beyond the real to something more 
more profound, maybe. Yeah, and I think in those early days, I suppose, you know, when West Side Story came out, cinema was much younger than it is now. Yes. Um, people were really exploring how these two things can exist because musicals were hugely popular yeah. on the stage. But cinema was also hugely popular. So how are these things going to work together and how can they inform one another? Maybe we're a bit blasé about cinema now, but I think at the time it was still perhaps more exciting. I think you're right. I think I've realised the answer to your question was in your question, which is Singing in the Rain. Yeah. <laughs> because actually the sequence in Singing in the Rain that gets forgotten is the writing of the new scene through the night. <laughs> and it, uh, appreciably they're exploring Hollywood and filmmaking, but all of the bones of that piece, I think, are theatrical. And actually, even Singing in the Rain itself is is staged like you might stage it on, 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 on in a theatre, in an auditorium. This sense that you, you we all suddenly become the audience and we're playing, you know, in, in and out with that character. But yeah, that is my favourite moment is when they, I don't know if you remember the bit where they jump on the sofa and kick the sofa yeah, over because it's in the yeah. morning and they've yeah. done it. And that, that sense of teamwork and collaborative working to make something for the, for the urgency of the theatre. Yeah, maybe that's the one. Well, it's funny you should say that because there was a, a quote uh, in an article about you in the Stage magazine where they said, unity and collaboration are Wyman's watchwords. <laughs> that's nice, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think that is really true. I mean, I, I don't, I, it sounds immodest when you say it, but I, um, I guess what I meant was it is a collaborative art. And sometimes the way we write about it or ask questions about the theatre or the assumptions we make, suggest a much more hierarchical uh, way of going about things. Because we're interested in stars and that theatre can make stars and always has done, and maybe the RSC in particular has often discovered young actors to be incredible talents that are going to go on to, to, to great work on screen, for example, and then hopefully come back to the stage at some point in their lives. I think that sets up an idea that there are these singular artists and everything else is serving them. But it's really not my experience Great work in the theatre happens when everyone is pulling in the same direction. And I mean, I did a few years ago, I did a production of Oh, What a Lovely War, the Joe Littlewood piece. And I got a colleague who used to be a Marine to come and talk to us about being a serving soldier. This may seem like it's off the point, but it's not. And he talked to us about, you know, being a, she, she very specifically wanted a company of 12, because that's the same as a, a group of men who would have served in the First World War. And he said, um, you you think you know what life and death is, but obviously you don't because when it's, you know, when it's for real, it's very different. But actually the thing that struck my ear was that he, he was also a man of the theatre and understood us a bit. And he was right. We do think we know what life and death is. Now, we know we know that it's not real life and death, but we have to look after each other because we are out in front of an audience with no safety net. There's there's just the hope that we've remembered our words, that people are going to like it, that we're going to keep going, that, you know, our, our hair isn't going to get caught in our <laughs> jacket, which, of course, if it happens in real life, it's fine. But if you're, you're mid-flow and you're about to jump off a building or something, you know, it's not, it's not okay. So that sense of being deeply reliant on each other and able to improvise and able to cope with whatever comes your way, you can't do that without brilliant teamwork. Final film time then. I think we're going back to The Bard, aren't we? We are going back to The Bard. And my my challenge, I guess, is that we've got this amazing group of films that, we're on, that we have captured, this the, the Shakespeare's plays, 
one by one, not repeated at all since the first uh, broadcast in 2012, which is David Tennant's Richard II. I was like, well, Still one of the biggest of all time. I was going to say, I should choose that one, obviously, because it is one of the biggest of all time. It was the most incredible event. Uh, you know, the real sense the whole nation was watching and David's performance and indeed the company's performance is really amazing because it's a little known play. I mean, it's really very beautiful. However, treacherously, I'm not going to choose that one. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to choose Much Ado About Nothing. Um, uh, Ed Bennett and Michelle Terry um, in the leading roles. Michelle's now the artistic director of the Globe, Shakespeare's Globe. And I'm going to choose that one because coming back to being in a school, I also saw that one in a school. And it's the first time I'd watched one of the broadcasts, broadcasts into classroom. And I mean, A, it's a great production. It was set um, just after the First World War, which really suited that play. So I think it really, for me, explained how that play works, that people are coming out of a period of, of, of melancholy and trauma. And they say they're never going to feel happiness again. And it's rubbish. And so it's one of the most glorious happy endings. It's properly like Christmas Carol, you know, it's got, it's joyful because they're obviously going to get together. But it's very convincing that they don't think they will. Um, and Ed and Michelle are wonderful. But my memory of it is watching it with two intervals in this in a school in Northamptonshire. And um, in the second interval, we just got to the chapel scene where Hero is revealed uh, seemingly to have betrayed Claudio. And, um, and then the interval fell. And there were these eight and nine-year-olds absolutely furious with him. I mean, livid. And they were arguing with me because somehow I represented... The, the company, but also Shakespeare. And I remember being really tackled by them, going, what was he thinking? I mean, can you explain to us? She is obviously innocent. And there was this one lad who was brave enough to say, look, he he's seen evidence with what he thinks is his own eyes that she has betrayed him. Anyway, this massive debate broke out. And it was just the most wonderful thing, seeing young people respond to that play in that way. Because, again... You know, I did it when I kind of introduced this story. We think of it as a as a romantic comedy, and it is. But at the heart of it, which is Shakespeare's genius, is a near tragedy, and we all have to really go there. And that's what's extraordinary about the plays, that you plunge into them. And the idea that we could feel, you know, in a school of a morning, as if, as we were saying before, as if we were in the theatre, they really felt as though if they could get hold of the actor playing Claudio and tell him that he was wrong, they could change the course of events. And that was really exciting. I was thinking back to um, Kenneth Branagh's movie version yeah. of, of Much Ado in yeah. the early 90s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Kenneth Branagh's in it, Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington, great cast. <laughs> Amazing cast. Keanu yeah. Reeves is in it. Yeah. And I was remembering that time in the early 90s when we saw him as one kind of actor, the sort of doofus, you know, yeah, American true. teenager. Yes. He did that movie. Um, My Own Private Idaho is is loosely based on on Henry the Fourth, yeah. Part One and Two. Yeah. Um, and I think he also went and did Hamlet on stage as well. And I'm not saying that he's Ken Branner or Laurence Olivier or any of those people, but there was something that I loved about the fact that he was so desperate to to try you know he was mm, so mm. he was so hungry to yeah. prove himself yeah. and if you want to prove yourself as an actor what do you do shakespeare i think that's completely right well, why do you think it's why do you think it still is that well it's hard as an actor um it's it, the plays are 400 years old so we're sitting here talking about them as though they're alive now because actually when they're done well they are and i think that challenge just just at the get-go it's really exciting for an actor to go can I make it live now 
And they're, um, they're like a full body workout. So you have to use every single bit of you. I mean, actors talk about how they're very muscular. So you, you actually physically do have to be pretty fit. You've got these enormous phrases sometimes. And to make it feel like it's, it's contemporary English and we can understand it, actually you need to get the breath in the right place. So sometimes you're being really quite athletic with your breath. But equally, they are asking you to, to the plays, the characters are asking you to play these huge gamut of emotions. So you're kind of, I mean, yeah, it's an extraordinary stretch that in one scene you might be moving from something very sort of chic and uh, elegant and, and on the surface into your deepest, most private thoughts and back again. Um, and that's what the verse can do. I guess that's part of, I think, why they live these plays and they're still interesting to us is the verse asks you or gives you the tools maybe to share what's going on right inside yourself and at the same time be in dialogue with another character so yeah they ask everything of you i guess they're like you know doing a sprint and marathon at the same time (laughs) so we've been talking about getting lost in great stories at the cinema i mean is there one thing one moment one particular uh, occasion that springs to mind when you when you talk about things like that when you think about things like that I mean, there are quite a lot, so it's quite it's quite tricky. But a recent experience that felt like it captured what we've been talking about, about what's special about feeling like you're in the theatre, yeah. was the live broadcast of Fleabag. Oh. Because, um, of course, the kind of wild rawness, the sense that you're kind of seeing the origins of that character and yeah. the daring, the courage of the original. Um, and And yet... Yeah, that sense that you're just there in a room with her and actually it's just for you. I love that she brought it back, actually, yeah. because the stage that she was at in terms of a TV star, yeah. and you know, an international TV star with that, she didn't have to. No, I, it's interesting, isn't it? It felt like honouring, um, A, the team that, that put it together in the first place and where it, where it all began, the fact that it did begin in the theatre. But also I had a sense watching her that she was really loving it, that there was something about doing it live. Um, in a room for an audience that is that's what is the essence of that character the courage to say you see all of me yeah was really vivid and of course it translated beautifully to television but there was something really special about seeing seeing that uh, on a stage again and if we can uh, lose ourselves when it's just a solo show yeah. when it's one person yeah. you know that shows you that it's extra powerful that you yeah. don't need all the whistles and bangs and the the chorus members you can yeah, just do it with one person. Totally. I mean, in a way, that runs through, I think, you know, all, all, all of my choices and the sense that the thing that I love about the theatre, which is it's really just actors talking to an audience, that is all it is. And that in itself can be completely magic, can conjure landscapes and huge range of feelings and excitements. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Now, if you got lost in this episode, let us know at View Entertainment on all the usual social platforms. The hashtag is Get Lost in Great Stories. And don't forget, immersing ourselves in great film at the cinema isn't just fun. Research shows it's actually good for our well-being too. So, View has partnered with Medi Cinema. Medi Cinema build and run cinemas in hospitals to help improve the lives of patients. If you'd like to find out more or support their incredible work, head over to the podcast show notes for further details. Until next week, it's goodbye for now from me, James King, and all at View Entertainment. (laughs) 